0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind.
1: My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm Joe McCormick. Hey, Robert, yes. I've got a I've got a quiz question for you. All right, quiz me. What do you think is the animal out there in the world that humans are the most like? Hmm. Well, I mean, we're
0: we're so unlike all the creatures. Uh, But I mean, one obviously turns to the primates for our closest uh, evolutionary uh, relatives.
1: Yeah, I would say physiologically, if you look at comparative anatomy, and of course, genetically, we are the most similar to primates like chimpanzees and Mm -hmm. bonobos. And, And they actually are known to be our closest relatives in the animal kingdom. But I think if you look at humankind in a different light, if you don't just look at the individual body plans and compare one individual to another individual, but if you compare the entire species' ecological and trophic profile as a whole population, you can make a very different case. We're the most like ants. Huh. Okay. And we became more like ants starting around 10,000 to maybe 13,000 years ago. Before this time, I would say there's really no way to compare us to ants at all. We just weren't very ant-like, except maybe that you could say we were a social species. But, you know, maybe 10,000 to 13,000 years ago, humans first started practicing plant and animal agriculture. Hmm. And over the years, more people began to transition from a nomadic hunting and gathering way of life to a settled agricultural way of life. And, of course, the introduction of farming, we know the story, it changed everything. It allowed for surpluses of food resources, specialization of skills, education, writing, construction, invention, and so on. And because all of these processes were made possible by keeping people and resources close together with continuous interconnected access to one another, this meant the birth of of cities and i would say ever since then the construct of the city the idea of the city as a technological thing and as a social organizing principle has been one of the biggest influences that has changed the way human beings relate to the earth now, we're all pretty familiar with this story of, of urbanization from a human point of view. But from a biological or ecological point of view, it is an extremely strange and interesting thing for us to do. And it's also extremely similar to what ants do when they form colonies and build ant hills.
0: It is, yeah. When you when you start thinking about it, this this artificial habitat that they can they construct uh, to live in, and in you know, and in and in in some cases, grow their food in, cultivate their own crops.
1: Yeah, almost all creatures on Earth adapt to their environment. The environment is one way, and the animal over time evolves to be a best fit to the environment around them. But humans and ants and some other creatures, you could argue like bees and some other eusocial insects, termites, to some extent don't adapt to their ecosystem as much as they build an ecosystem for themselves. They engineer their own environments and their own ecosystems. And of course in both cases, anthills and human cities, these ecosystems are not hermetically sealed off from the rest of the world. They're porous and connected to the rest of the world. And what this means for ants, of course, is that they have entire classes of organisms that have specifically evolved to thrive within the ecosystems created by the ants. The same way that a fox or a wolf spider or any other creature would thrive within its natural environment, there are organisms that, that have evolved to thrive within the ant-engineered environments. And these organisms are called myrmecophiles.
0: Yeah, then there are a number of different species uh, that, uh, uh, that one could uh, spend time with here. Uh, a, c- a couple that, uh, that came up for me, though, uh, there's one, uh, this is an example I've researched before, the P. favieri beetle. So it uses a, a complex dance of both chemical and auditory mimicry to convince the at- ant population that it's one of them, even as it crawls in, into their uh, abode and feeds on their larvae and benefits from the colony's protection. But as Carl Zimmer highlights in his uh, New York Times piece on a study concerning these beetles, the deceptive uh, beetle may even mimic the queen from time to time in order to receive royal treatment. But it otherwise knows to leave the queen unharmed. It doesn't seek to decimate its host colony, but rather to thrive within it through perfect mimicry. Uh, And... uh, i explored this uh by the way originally because i was interested in the monster from john carpenter's the thing oh yeah because one of the ideas that is explored in the film and i think also in like a comic book sequel is that if this thing gets gets out if it escapes from this uh, frigid base it's going to just decimate
1: the world in no time. Right, it'll mimic all life forms and just take over the entire planet. Right. But it, would it necessarily do that?
0: Right. I mean it I mean you can certainly make a case that it's a uh, an alien contamination so who knows what it would do to uh, an, to an to what is to it an alien ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But I think if we look to examples like this from our natural world we can we can see that, well, maybe it wouldn't necessarily overrun the planet because it needs to live at harmony within the, the host ecosystem.
1: Yeah, it needs an ecosystem to survive off, off of. It can't become the whole ecosystem itself.
0: Yeah, so it's, there are going to be essentially self-imposed limits mm-hmm. on what
1: it will take over and destroy. Now, that's far from the only example of myrmecophiles that have uh, evolved specifically to survive and thrive within the environments created and maintained by ants. There are thousands more. Right. Uh, One that I ran
0: across that was interesting is the oak blue butterfly. Mm -hmm. So these don't reside really within the colony so much, but the butterfly larvae may chemically mimic or camouflage themselves and be accepted by the uh, what are sometimes called the plant ants <laughs> on their host plant, the ant plant, or uh, macaranga, as it's called. So uh, essentially what's happening here is the uh, chromatogaster ants, they nest in the plant's hollow stems and then attack anything that climbs or lights upon their domain except for the oak blue
1: larvae. And this is presumably because it has an evolved a defense that tricks the ants into thinking it's OK for it to be there. Yeah. So there's protection
0: within the ants domain, even if ultimately there's no more dangerous place to be than within an ants domain.
1: Right. There's protection if you have some kind of evolved defense to, right. to sneak through the city walls and say, OK, I'm part of this colony now. Nobody noticed that I'm not an ant. Yes. Hello, fellow ants. <laughs> Uh, now, ants have been engineering their own ecosystems for millions of years, right? So there's been a lot of time for these myrmecophiles and uh, the, these creatures that infest ant colonies and other ant-controlled environments to very tightly hone their, their evolved traits, right? There's been a lot of time for them to do this. Humans, on the other hand, have only been engineering their own environments for much, much less time, just thousands of years. But nevertheless, our human anthills seem to be in the early stages of developing myrmecophiles of our own, except they wouldn't be myrmecophiles. They would be creatures of the city, As we continue to engineer environments around the concept of the city, more and more forms of wildlife are beginning to show marked adaptations and eventually heritable evolved traits for specifically surviving in human urban landscapes – This is urban evolution, and this is going to be our topic for today. This is actually going to be the first part of a multi-part episode that we will continue to explore just because there's so much interesting stuff to talk about. But it's going to be focused on wild organisms evolving to survive and even thrive within the ecosystems that humans have engineered for themselves. And we should go ahead and mention that uh, we've been wanting to do this episode for a while, but recently a book came out on this topic. And this became one of our major sources for this episode. Uh, it's a book by the Dutch evolutionary biologist Minno Skilthausen, who is a researcher at the Naturalis Biodiversity Center, which is a museum in Leiden, Netherlands. And the book is called Darwin Comes to Town. It was just published by Picador just recently.
0: Yeah, I'll include a link to this book on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBullYourMind.com. Uh, I want to note that the, the cover illustration is fabulous because you have this, this drawing of various animals scaling a ziggurat that mm-hmm. is formed of all these buildings and skyscrapers.
1: Yeah, it's, it really captures the spirit of the book. Mm-hmm. I I'd appreciate a good cover illustration because so many books have bad cover art now. Yeah, it seems to be a dying uh, art form. Hey, here's my cry out there if you're a publisher of science fiction or fantasy or something like that, stop going with the stop going with the stock art. get those original illustrated covers back. Those were great.
0: Yes, and I do not want to see another minimalist uh, like mock-up of a movie poster or a book cover. I'm done with that I want I want a, a full uh, visual
1: experience. Now back to the subject. OK, so Skilthausen actually himself makes this comparison between human cities and ant colonies and the subsequent comparison between myrmecophiles and the organisms that have come to thrive in our cities. And I think it's a really good comparison. Except one difference is that our cities are actually even much more vast and varied landscapes than the complex environments that ants create, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, you look at something like, say, New York City, right?
0: You have the the sort of concrete jungle... Uh, regions of the city. You have an artificial um, wilderness in its center. You have essentially mountains made out of steel and glass that alter the uh, uh, the flow of air, that alter the weather itself. Yeah. Uh, you just have so many different uh,
1: elements going on to warp the natural world into a new form. I tried to make a short list of just some of the ways that cities are fundamental departures From what the natural landscapes around them are like. And I I know I didn't capture everything here, but here are just the things that occurred to me in our research. One of them is habitation surfaces, right? Not many complex organisms can live on flat concrete without soil or vegetation. That's not an environment that occurs all that much on Mm -hmm. Earth. And when environments kind of like that do occur, there aren't a whole lot of organisms that inhabit them. So much of the plant and animal life in cities is isolated to or based in urban islands of vegetation. So there are going to be things like parks or small undeveloped areas or urban trees or yards or gardens or grassy street medians. We look at these spaces in our urban areas as kind of blank, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe not parks, but a lot of these other things, like the grassy median between two sides of a highway.
0: Yeah, we we might think of that as a place – that is empty, but really like that's the only place in your field of vision where there is Non-human life yeah. taking place at any like r- you know real degree.
1: We look at those places sort of like the margins of a, of a page. Like mm-hmm. that's where nothing's going on. But yeah, that that is in fact like a hot spot. It's a hotbed of life and activity that is surrounded by these dead rivers of asphalt. So many feral cats just whooping it up in there. <laughs> but there is so much more than that. So okay, that's the obvious habitation surfaces. But then there is climate. Actually, the climate of a city is generally different than the climate of the surrounding area. We've talked before on the podcast about the idea of the urban heat island effect and mm-hmm. urban rain. Uh, the, the material properties of cities and the way they absorb and reflect light and retain heat actually affects the, the temperature and the weather within the city, usually leading to these situations where in the middle of a city, it's a lot hotter than the surrounding countryside is on the same day. An obviously huge factor uh, that makes a city different than the surrounding environment is what types of food resources are available. There's going to be completely different nutritional profiles. Yeah, outside of the city, a
0: bird has to, uh, you know, hunt around for its, uh, its food. But inside the city, it can just fly into that Home Depot <laughs> and just aisle upon aisle of food awaits it.
1: Now, I wonder if for birds, a Home Depot eventually becomes a sub-city within a city where birds will evolve their own populations within the Home <laughs> Depot over time. Oh, wow.
0: That's kind of frightening. I imagine like large prehistoric carnivorous birds roaming mm-hmm. the Home Depot, picking off humans that are a little too, little too picky in which soil they're going to purchase for their home garden.
1: Here's another one. You've got very different kinds of threats in human-created environments than you do have in unspoiled natural landscapes. You have environmental threats, human threats, and machine threats. I mean, think about – try to put yourself in the mind space of like a fox or a coyote or a raccoon or something. And you're living in a place where there are these giant mechanical predators Mm -hmm. constantly – Plowing through the city back and forth at high speeds and they will kill you, uh, but also they don't really seem to chase you. And so it's it's you're not evolved at all to deal with this kind of situation.
0: Yeah, the the real life frogger game that is life for an
1: animal in the city. Yeah, cars as predators. It's a thing that's hard to wrap, wrap your mind around if you're a fox. Then, of course, there's a totally different chemical environment than there is in in unspoiled nature. So you've got pollutants, of course. You've got the byproducts of industry and all that. But then you've got things that people wouldn't even often tend to think of. Like how about if you're in a northern city? What – Chemically you might you do to alter the surfaces of the city during the winter. Well, I'm thinking about uh, spilled hot chocolate for starters, I guess <laughs> That's a good one, but how about salting the roads? Oh my goodness. I mean yeah, millions of pounds of salt. You turn it into basically a big salt lick of death. Exactly. Yeah, so you're you're fundamentally altering the chemical profile of the surfaces that these animals dwell upon and suddenly all this runoff water that would normally be fresh water becomes salt water mm-hmm. and yeah, it's totally strange. Here's another one, the light darkness regime, completely different in cities than it is in a place that hasn't been colonized by human beings.
0: That that's a that's a great one. I mean, that and roads are situation like light pollution and, and roads. Of course, are everywhere. Uh, the roads crisscross human habitats mm-hmm. wherever they occur and and uh, in, you know, invite death for anything that uh, dares to cross it. And then, of course, we we've all heard uh, accounts of how dangerous uh, artificial lighting can be uh, in, to various natural. Uh, Uh, habitats, including beach habitats for uh, turtles
1: that are returning from the ocean to lay their eggs. Yeah. And of course, a big one being for insects. The way light affects insects is crazy. I mean, there's this thing known as the vacuum cleaner effect  … that Skilthausen talks about in his book where you put, say, a service station out by a dark highway in the middle of nowhere and Mm -hmm. it's got lights on at night. And what this is going to do is act like a vacuum that just sucks in insect life from the entire surrounding countryside uh, for a period of time until it's killed so many millions of insects that eventually uh, the density around it just kind of drops off and then it stops happening for a while.
0: Wow. And then you have the city, which just has that going on all the time. Yeah. It's just a a center of artificial light all night.
1: Now, that's by no means all of the ways that cities change the environment from the natural environment, but that's a handful of them to get you thinking about the ways that these techno-beasts that we inhabit that feel very natural and normal to us— are, are alien sci-fi environments for animals that are designed to live in a meadow or live in the forest or something like that. And yet at the same time, we know from and Malcolm that life uh, finds a way. <laughs> That's right. And it, find a way it does. And that is what we're going to be focusing on for the rest of the episode today is many of the fascinating ways that urban life affects wildlife and that wildlife adapts to it or fails to adapt to it.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will dive right into the topic. All right, we're back. Uh, You know, Joe... We live in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and certainly, especially the portion of Atlanta we reside in is, is far from a like, stereotypical concrete jungle. We have a lot of green trees around, a lot of these little no-man zones of, uh, of, uh, of, of built-up weeds and vegetation for things to live in. What are some of your, your favorite wild animals that you've encountered?
1: Yeah. Atlanta actually is sometimes known as the city of trees. And I I like that about it. I mean, it can be a problem if a tree falls on your house or something, but otherwise it's very nice to have all this urban greenery that we do have. Uh, But yeah, as far as urban wildlife goes, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot just in my backyard. Like our our, our dog, Charlie, he loves to chase the squirrels in the backyard. And there was one night not too long ago when he's not a barker. He doesn't bark much, but Mm -hmm. we let him out in the backyard one night and suddenly he started barking and we were like, what's going on? And we went out to get him and we realized he was in a standoff with an opossum that's perched <laughs> up on the fence and not moving. It just was frozen and staring at him and you know, making the face. And so we got him inside and the opossum never moved. We looked back out the window like a, a while later and it was still in the exact same place, hadn't moved from the spot. And I think about adaptations when I see stuff like that. So, OK, you've got an urban opossum. Mm-hmm. And that maybe is getting some tasty trash morsels living in the city like this. But it's also got to deal with dogs and backyards and people and animal catchers and cars and all this stuff that threatens it. And for some reason, its, it's evolved response to this is freeze and make the scary face. <laughs> Why does it do that? And does that usually work? Or what, what was that trait evolved as a solution to
0: you know the the backyard division of things is really interesting because uh it does create these these little sequestered zones where uh that are protected uh, but each one also may contain its own localized predator yeah. in the form of uh a, a dog or even you know cats which i guess are going to be less uh restricted by the the fences
1: yeah little enclosures with monsters in them
0: yeah uh it was very recently it was just last week actually that i I heard this ruckus, bird ruckus in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And I went to check it out because I'm thinking, oh, what's happening? And cat? There's a, maybe a feral cat back there messing with some birds. I look back there. The birds were agitated because a wild turkey was in my backyard. Whoa. Yeah. So and, good. I know. It's, it's really kind of a holy experience to see a, a creature that's ultimately so large. If you've not seen one there, it's a far different animal than the like the Thanksgiving turkey. But it is, uh, it is a, still a big critter. And seeing it hop up there on the fence and then uh, uh, disappear into the next yard was pretty uh, pretty awe-inspiring for me.
1: Yeah, my parents actually in Tennessee sometimes get uh, turkeys in their yard. Well, you know, I don't know about everyone else, but
0: uh, one animal that instantly came to mind for me uh, when thinking of, uh, of, of creatures that thrive in an urban I- environment is the noble trash panda, the raccoon.
1: Oh, raccoons.
0: Yeah, they've uh, – you know, it makes sense because raccoons, they've thrived in North America for at least two point five million years, or at least we know that its uh, Procyon uh, genus was well established here by that point, with mm-hmm. its ancestry reaching back a good th- thirty-seven million years. But their success is due largely to their flexibility.
1: Oh yeah, they're sort of a jack of all.
0: Yeah, yeah they they have they have teeth for both uh, the the shearing of meat and also uh, expanded molars for crushing. They also have these incredibly sensitive hands which can be used to manipulate objects and and
1: feel without loss of sensitivity for food and chilly stream beds. You know, that makes me wonder. Sometimes our listeners have asked this fun question before. It was like, if humans disappeared, what would be the next creature on Earth to, like, assume the sort of intelligent civilization mantelpiece? And, of course, you want to say, well, probably great apes or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people want to say dolphins or whatever. But – you could say, well, I wonder about raccoons. They've got yeah. hands that are really kind of hand-like. They can manipulate objects. That seems significant.
0: Yeah, and I was uh, when I did dived a little deeper into this. I was really impressed by just how sensitive their hands are. So I want to read a tidbit here. This is from Northern Woodlands Magazine. Quote: There's a myth that raccoons wash their food, but what they're doing when they wet and rub an object is seeing it. It's thought that water contact increases a raccoon's tactile ability. When a raccoon wets and handles a crayfish, stone, worm, or clam, he's gathering information. Nearly two-thirds of the sensory data that he's processing comes from cells that interpret various types of touch sensation. In other words, touch is as important a sense as hearing, smell, and sight.
1: I had no idea. That's fascinating.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's especially hard for you know, any of us with, with healthy uh, sight to really mm-hmm. think about that, to think about that sense of touch as being one of the the most important ways that you interact with your
1: surroundings. Well, there's that, but there's also the Peripheral sort of mentality that comes along with that, right? The the animal personality that is correlated with the feeling of touch as an exploratory mechanism, because it makes you think that this is a creature that's likely to sample objects in its environment at a high rate.
0: Yeah, it's it's not enough just to peer at it uh, from the shrubs. It's got to get up there. It's got to handle it and see what's what. Uh, so you know what happens when an adaptive creature with marvelous little hands like this ventures into the city well it thrives and uh raccoons have been of of interest uh, to science for over a century because of this they flourish in human environments In 1907, uh, psychologist Lawrence W. Cole and Clark University graduate student Herbert Burnham Davis uh, both independently studied raccoon intelligence in light of this. And they concluded that they were smarter than cats and dogs and were more in the cognitive realm of monkeys. Mm. Now, not everyone agrees with that, I should note.
1: Now, whatever the baseline level of raccoon intelligence as far as object manipulation and all that goes, there is one thing that has become clear, which is that there's a pretty large variation in the difference between different populations of raccoons and their intelligence at, say, uh, spatial problem solving.
0: Right. The the distinction being that of, of city raccoons and country raccoons, rural and urban raccoons. Right. It seems like one of those populations has
1: more incentive to get smart about how to mess with objects.
0: That's Right. So uh, Susan McDonald, a comparative uh, psychologist at York University in Toronto, she compared the problem-solving abilities of urban and rural raccoons and found that urban raccoons
1: win in both intelligence and ability. Yeah, I re- was reading about one of these studies, and apparently it required the raccoon to figure out how to get into a food-baited trash can that had its lid held shut with a bungee cord. Mm-hmm. And apparently in the study I was reading about, none of the rural raccoons could get into the trash can, but about 80 percent of the city raccoons did.
0: Yeah, in. In a 2016 Nautilus article titled The Intelligent Life of the City Raccoon, Jude Isabella uh, points out the following uh, in this regarding uh, the study. Quote, For the past few summers, she videotaped rural and urban raccoons toying with containers baited with cat food. While both rural and city raccoons readily approached familiar containers, they dealt differently with unfamiliar ones. Where rural raccoons took a long time to approach novel containers, city raccoons would attack them the moment she turned her back.
1: (laughs) I like that opportunism. That's great.
0: Yeah. So one of the ideas here is city raccoons, they're – they're fast to get in there. They're fearless in approaching a problem, but they also they they stick with the problem that they're trying to figure out. They'll work at it for an hour or more, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how do I get into this? How do I how do I defeat this problem? That
1: just shows perseverance pays off.
0: Yeah, and then this also brings us back just to the idea of a city. Like, what does the artificial environment of a city do? Well, Isabella cites the work of Harvard economist Edward Glaser. Uh, the author of *Triumph of the City*, uh, and uh, Glaser argues that cities themselves are machines for learning. Uh, and if raccoons are innately bold and curious, uh, then they engage with these puzzles more readily. What's more, increasingly complex latches and and uh, and uh, other devices they may be encountering quote may actually be training raccoons to open them. So the city itself, as we change it, trains the raccoons and sort of changes them.
1: Now, an important thing to consider is that this might be happening at multiple levels of honing the skills of raccoons, right? Mm -hmm. You can imagine on, in one sense, raccoons are just getting better at solving puzzles within their lives, right? They may to some extent be learning how to adapt to this. But in another extent, they may be getting better at solving puzzles across generations, right? The ones that solve more of these puzzles tend to get more food and thus have more offspring. And thus it's possible we're literally seeing an evolution of the city raccoon into a baseline smarter animal, or at least an animal that's better at manipulating these kinds of traps and foreign objects.
0: Yeah, in a way, it's like the the city raccoons are in more of an arms race with their environment, uh, whereas the rural raccoons, are, there's their environment is a bit more static. Now, at the, at the same time, I mean, we've already touched on on the growing uh, city, and uh, and one of the ramifications of that is that it diminishes the uh, the, r- the rural environments. Yeah. And that is very evident when it comes to uh, foxes, especially the foxes of, uh, of Britain. According to uh, the 2017 article in The Guardian, Fox's Surgeon to England's Towns and Cities by Charlie Cuff, um, the overall number of UK foxes is in decline, but the number of urban foxes has quadrupled over the past 20 years. Yeah. One study estimates that 150,000 foxes thrive in England, one for every 300 city dwellers. Uh, That's up from 33,000 in the 90s. Essentially, what's happening here is that the foxes are losing their rural habitats and they're just finding a lot more food, including garden worms and all those rats and mice, as well as suitable habitats in the urban environment.
1: Yeah, uh, Skilthausen talks about this in his book, mentioning that Some of what drives animals into the city is not just what's available in the city or the fact that the city now exists where their home used to be, but the depletion of the habitability of the surrounding landscape. This is happening all over the place. Even though cities are these extremely weird alien places for animals to try to survive in, they tend to be more habitable environments than the wastelands created just outside of cities.
0: I'm reminded of uh, the, you know, a, a witch's gingerbread house in the woods, uh-huh. you know, for a couple of kids who are lost in the woods, there's no more dangerous place than going into that gingerbread house. But at the same time, the woods are terrifying and full of uh, of inedible things and berries that will poison you if you try and eat them. Whereas the witch's house is made out of candy. How can you work out a deal with
1: this witch? That's the challenge. <laughs> But what if the candy is just all of the trash that the witch threw away because she didn't want to eat herself? Oh, yeah. Well, so we are on the subject of trash life. Of course, much of what we're talking about with the raccoons is how they uh, are affected by – by urban trash and what's trash to us may be delicious morsels for many scavenging animals, Mm -hmm. especially if they're not super picky and they're smart at manipulating containers and things like that. Uh, But I thought we should explore some more of the ways that the pervasive presence and endless forms of human garbage, and I mean the garbage produced by humans, not people who are garbage, Mm -hmm. how that shaped urban animal life. So I've got one. Robert, do you remember the McFlurry hedgehog? I do not remember the McFlurry hedgehog. Have you ever had a McFlurry? In in the past, I believe I, I did have a McFlurry or two, yes. I'm not trying to be a snob. I can say I've never had one of these things, so I can't speak from experience. But maybe you can help guide me on the McFlurryology here. The only thing I remember is that they had a weird top. Yeah, that's that's the thing. So back in the mid-90s, McDonald's fast food restaurant introduced the McFlurry which is it's some kind of ice cream thing right God knows what it's like hamburger flavored ice cream no or
0: something. now you're now you're just trash talking the McFlurry <laughs> it, it it was at least it was sweet it was sweet
1: flavor uh-huh. does it have Big Mac sauce in it
0: no but it's it, it all I remember is uh, just an
1: overpowering sweetness well so this sweet stuff that was in the McFlurry it was served out of containers with these weird lids you're talking about that essentially functioned as a hedgehog trap oh. so So the way it seemed to work is that you'd be eating your McFlurry and then you'd throw the container down on the sidewalk or the parking lot. And then later a hedgehog would come along and want some of that delicious reeking sugar stuff inside the cup. But the aperture in the lid, which I guess made for spoon access, so you could use a spoon, Mm -hmm. it was just big enough for hedgehogs and some skunks to stick their heads inside and slurp up some McMelty. But then, of course, hedgehogs have spines. And the spines are generally oriented to fold backward from the head. So once the hedgehog's head is in the hole, it might not be able to get itself back out of the McFlurry cup. So on the one hand, this is funny. I've included an image for you to look at. It, it is funny and very cute and led to much laughter about little creatures running around with their heads stuck in cups. But there's a dark side, right? Which is that if nobody helped these creatures out, nobody saw them, they would probably die, right? Possibly of starvation or they might wander into traffic or they might wander into a body of water and drown.
0: Oh, yeah, that is terrifying. It puts a, it, at first it's cute and then when it's explained to you, then,
1: uh, then it is a very sad affair. But fortunately, there was a good end to it. After years of complaints from organizations like the British Hedgehog Preservation Society, in 2006, McDonald's eventually changed the design of their lids to make them too small for hedgehogs to get their heads through in the first place. So fortunately, that had a good resolution. But that's just one example of the thousands of ways we can't even predict about how the shape or chemistry or nutritional profile or whatever of human refuse will exploit some fatal flaw in another organism. And also, you always have to wonder how if McDonald's had never intervened, this might have shaped the evolution of city-dwelling hedgehogs, right? Would this cause a selection pressure for hedgehogs that were better at getting their heads out of small holes or for hedgehogs with big heads that would never get through the hole to begin with or for hedgehogs that didn't like the smell of dairy products and wouldn't be interested in ice cream? So let's dig through more trash, Robert. You ready to dig, dig through more Let's trash? Let's do it. What else is in there that's uh, that's worth eating? How about beetles and bottles? Have you ever read this story before,
0: Robert? I've read Fox and Socks, where there's a uh, much discussion of uh, of beetle battles inside of a bottle.
1: No, 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 no. This is beetle. This is not a battle. This is a beetle something else outside of a bottle. So, I want to take you to Australia to meet the Julodimorpha bakewelli, which is the Australian jewel beetle. It's a type of beetle from the buprestid family found throughout a lot of parts of Australia. Mm -hmm. And so in 1983, there were a couple of biologists named Daryl Quinn and David Rentz. And they published some interesting findings about human trash and its local effects on wildlife in the Journal of Austral Entomology. So here's the story. Earlier that year in 1983, the authors were wandering out beside a highway near a town called Dongra in Western Australia. And they noticed something weird. A male jewel beetle perched on top of a piece of litter, which was a discarded brown beer bottle.
0: Okay. Well, that in and of itself is not that strange.
1: Uh, then they got closer and they looked, see what's going on here. And they realized the beetle was trying to mate with the beer bottle. Oh! The authors looked around and they found two more beer bottles of the same type, both of which had male Bakewellies trying to mate with them. And the males were either on the side of the bottle or quote, mounted on top with quote, averted genitalia. Huh. And I've got a picture here of what the beetles look like with averted genitalia. <laughs> okay. I'm seeing it now. I don't know if you have any comments on that.
0: Um, I do it does uh convey the the sense that this uh this
1: insect is trying to mate with the bottle, that's it for sure. It's quite averted. Yes. Yeah. So what's going on here? Well, the authors noted that Bakewelli is a species in which males can fly and the females are ground dwelling, and the color and texture of these beer bottles in many ways resembled a giant female of this beetle species. The authors write, quote. The shiny brown color of the glass is similar to the shiny yellow brown elytra of J. Bakewelly, and, quote, rows of regularly spaced small tubercles around the base of the bottles reflect light in a similar way to the punctations on the elytra of the beetle. So these brown beer bottles, referred to as stubbies in Australia at the time, were proving very efficient at setting off mating behaviors in male beetles, and almost alarmingly so, because uh, when the authors Uh, picked up the bottles the beetles would not leave them unless physically removed and then the authors also performed an informal experiment where they placed four stubbies these beer bottles on the ground Mm -hmm. and watched to see what happened and within 30 minutes two of the four bottles had male beetles trying to mate with them oh man and it gets worse i want to read a quote from their paper quote In one of the observations, a male at the side of the bottle was being attacked by a number of ants which were biting at the soft portions of his averted genitalia. A dead male covered in ants was located a few centimeters away from this same bottle. So these things are literally dying to mate with glass bottles. Because
0: just going off of their genetic programming, like, this is their purpose. I have come here to mate with this, this most glorious and large of females. Uh, and I must do so even as ants are te-
1: tearing me apart. Exactly right. Ants may be chewing off my genitals, but it is worth it because this bottle sets off all of my internal signals for amazing attractiveness in a female of my species. So uh, there is another fortunate ending from the human perspective. I read a report on NPR that the bottle designers became aware of this and eventually they changed the bottle design to remove the small bumps on the glass. After they did that, the male beetles stopped caring about them. Oh, well, that's good. But once again, you can imagine what would have happened if nobody noticed this and the bottle makers never changed their methods. We'll never know, but one possibility is these beetles could have become endangered or gone extinct with all the healthy males refusing to mate with actual females because they preferred glass bottles. These bottles were better looking than the real members of the species. But in other possibilities, the species would have evolved to favor different sexual preference genes in males, right? That males would be not attracted to whatever features set off the extreme bottle desire, mm-hmm. but to something else, maybe scent or something like that.
0: And I mean, again, just the crazy thing about this is that... It's not like they were sitting around trying to come up with a bottle design that would uh, throw off beetle mating in the uh, immediate area. This was just pure accident. Yeah. But it could have had disastrous
1: consequences for the species. All, all this stuff is pure accident. Now, I want to explore an accident that went a different way where animals have been found to be adapting in a positive way to harmful trash being thrown into their environment. Okay. Uh, do you ever have that friend, Robert, who thought it was cool to flick cigarette butts out into the world when they're done smoking? You know, they're like, uh, the system, man, they finish there and they just flick the butt.
0: Uh, I have not, but I, I will still occasionally see somebody at uh, like a stoplight that's mm-hmm. doing that. And I, I judge them rather harshly.
1: Yeah, it's not cool to do. Don't, don't litter the world with your cigarette butts. But it actually, ter- that was not a pun, by the way. <laughs> Uh, there, there's an interesting follow-up to this. So Montserrat Suarez-Rodriguez is an ecologist at the National Autonomous University of Mexico in Mexico City. And she and her colleagues Isabel Lopez-Ruhl and Constantino Marcias-Garcia published some fascinating research in biology letters in 2012. And they started by pointing out something really interesting about the birds of Mexico City – the birds were putting discarded cigarette butts in their nests.
0: Okay. Well, now, that, that in and of itself doesn't sound crazy because if, if there are a lot of these around, if cigarette butts are
1: more forthcoming than twigs, then why not put them in your nest? Right. Yeah, they're fiber, right? So if, if the cities are full of littered cigarette butts, maybe the urban birds will just use whatever kind of fiber is around to be part of the nest. That You know, there's some cellulose here. I'll put it in the structure of the nest. But these researchers performed experiments and they found something pretty amazing. They looked at the nests of house sparrows, which are Passer domesticus, and house finches, which are Carpadocus mexicanus. And they found that the more cigarette butts a nest contained, the fewer parasitic mites could be found in the nest. Ah. Now, why would that be? Well, cigarette butts contain a cellulose filter through which the smoke passes when you smoke a cigarette, Right. And this filter traps all kinds of compounds from the smoke, including nicotine, the stimulant drug in the tobacco products. So why do tobacco plants contain nicotine in the first place? It's because it is a poison designed to deter herbivorous animals from eating the plants, including insects. And it's even been used by humans directly as an insecticide.
0: Oh, so this is a, a for the the birds a naturally occurring insecticide yeah. in their uh, artificial
1: city environment. Exactly, the birds have parasitic arthropods that attack them in their nests, but if they line their nests with insecticide traps found among the trash and gutters of the city, they can repel these parasites. And the re- the researchers confirmed this by setting up traps to attract parasites lined with two types of cigarette butts. They had smoked butts and unsmoked butts. And the parasites were much more deterred from the nests that had the smoked butts in them. Now, why would that be? The smoked butts contained the nicotine because the smoke had come through them while the unsmoked butts didn't contain anything. They were just the cellulose. So the researchers determined it was not just the fiber. It really was the nicotine. And now at the same time, that's an ingenious adaptation to the available materials of a city – but we also shouldn't conclude that this is always going to be good for the birds because exposure, of course, could have negative side effects that haven't been identified yet. We all know what some of the negative side effects of exposure to tobacco products can be.
0: But still, they've, they've essentially made a protective uh, chemical weapon out of these discarded
1: cigarette butts. Now, here's another thing about the physical environment of cities that uh, most of us probably wouldn't even stop to think about. But there is an extremely simple difference in the kinds of physical surfaces one encounters more often in the city versus the country. Country, right, What kind of animal is actually evolved to live on hard, flat, relatively smooth surfaces with no vegetation cover that you can't dig down into? And that sounds like a nightmare, right?
0: Yeah. Like this, what kind of creatures do, would you typically find scurrying about? on rocks and other flat surfaces?
1: I mean, not that many. I mean, you—you you, some live on rocks, but at least then you'd have vegetation nearby or you could retreat down into cracks between the rocks. Mm-hmm. The sort of flat, unbreakable surfaces of the city are, and especially the smooth ones are just not great for many animals. But nevertheless, animals adapt. Life finds a way. So another study I want to mention is that a team led by Kristen Winchell of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, examined males of the anole lizard, which is Anolis cristatellus, uh, from a couple of cities in Puerto Rico, and compared them to males of the same species from adjacent forests, And was there any biological difference? You bet. They actually published their results in the journal Evolution in 2016. And what they reported was that the city lizards had both longer legs and they had more lamellae, which are these structures on the toes, on the undersides of the feet, that help the toes stick to surfaces, especially smooth surfaces. Uh So these traits were probably helping the lizards, helping these animal lizards evolve to be able to ...climb smooth walls and stay attached to these smooth, slippery surfaces, even vertically aligned ones. Yeah,
0: these these kind of like essentially like hypersurfaces. You're not going to find something that is that, is that flat uh, and, and featureless, that, that vertical
1: in the natural environment. Yeah, and so to test whether this was an actual inherited trait... They also raised lizards from stock captured in the city and from stock captured in the forest. And they raised them both in the lab just to make sure it was a true genetic difference and not some weird way the lizards were able to change their bodies during life. And it turned out it was a true heritable difference. The city lizards hatched wall climbers with these more lamellae and the longer legs and the forest lizards did not. Hmm. And you can imagine that so many city species are evolving along these lines, with small changes in their body, just to get a better grip on the surfaces of human-made environments, right?
0: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Like this is the this is the geography you're presented with.
1: Now, while we're on the subject of crawling reptiles, I want to know something about city-dwelling animals. Okay, is it true? That there are colonies of alligators living in the New York sewers.
0: Ah, the, now this is a fun, fun topic. Uh, sometimes they are uh, they're, they're reported to be uh, blind, uh, like albino alligators living, yeah, in like thick packs in the uh, the depths of say the New York sewer system.
1: Is this ever addressed in one of the Blade
0: movies? I don't think so. Maybe unless they made passing reference to it. I know it shows up in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles.
1: Well, it would have been a great set piece to have like blade battle like an albino crocodile vampire that lives in the sewers. Well, we have at least one film.
0: Uh, there's a 1980s alligator. Do you remember this one? I've never seen it. I should have. I don't know why I haven't seen it. Oh, man. I saw it as a, a kid. It was, it was a lot of fun. It uh, starred uh, Robert uh, Forster.
1: Oh, Robert yeah. Forster. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it uh, takes place in Chicago, though, not New York City, which is a shame considering uh, what I'm about to uh, lay on everybody. Well, tell me, is it real? Okay. It, well, for, it's not real. Oh. <laughs> I think we if you are near a, a New York uh, sewer right now, do not worry about the blind uh, alligators climbing up after you. Uh, I looked at a 1979 paper, Alligators in the Sewers, a Journalistic Origin by Lauren Coleman, published in the Journal of American Folklore. And um, she, this is interesting. She points to Thomas Pynchon, uh, the uh, famed uh, American author of Gravity's Rainbow, hmm. uh, as someone who did not—he did not uh originate the tale, but he helped to uh, propagate it uh, and propel it uh, through his uh, debut, 1963 novel V, in which there is this. Uh, this, this brief discussion of you know the classic trope baby alligators that are acquired at a carnival or fair or on a, uh, a a trip to Florida, you come back to New York, they start getting bigger, so what happens? They get flushed down the toilet or thrown out, and then they wind up in the sewer. That sounds like a cruel thing
1: to do to a baby
0: alligator. I agree, uh, but it, it, it's this uh, you know this idea that oh well, they, they wind up here by accident and then they wind up down there and then they thrive quote. Down there, God knew how many there were. Some had turned cannibal because in their neighborhood the rats had all been eaten or had fled in terror.
1: Thanks, Thomas Pynchon.
0: <laughs> but uh, Coleman digs deeper to, than this. Uh, so various authors and even uh, herpetologists, uh, she found, referred to the urban legend, but they cited it as such. They were not saying this is true. They were saying, hey, there's this is crazy story some people tell. Okay. Um, claiming, you know, they grow fat on New York sewer rats they, and, and or they grow pale and blind in the depths. Uh, But then she explored more than 70 reports of just alligator sightings in general in northern American climates, uh, such as an 1892 account of a frozen gator that supposedly washed up on the banks of the Rock River in Wisconsin. Uh, But she found just one single account of a sewer gator that was at the time actually reported as fact. Uh, and she admits that this may have never taken place it could be a you know a fraudulent story but the matter-of-fact reporting style and the fact that this was a a very established paper may have caused the story to simply explode wait what paper was it the new york times
1: no way yes
0: oh february 10th 1935 uh, you can find this full um this full article online either uh uh, in the New York Times um, archives, which I believe you need a membership to access, but then other people have have, uh, have reproduced it elsewhere on the web. Uh, this is the the title: Alligator found in uptown sewer. <laughs> Youth shoveling snow in manhole see the animal churning in the icy waters. Snare it and drag it out. Reptile slain by rescuers when it gets vicious. Whence it came is mystery. <laughs> so um, I, I'm going to let everyone else uh, go read this on their own. I'll include a link to it on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. But essentially, the idea is uh, the uh, they they discover this sewer gator and they're frightened by it, and then they drag it up into onto the under the snow and then beat it to death with snow shovels. No, yeah, why? I guess it's just what you do. I guess when you're frightened of a of a large creature. But then, it, but again, I want to stress, this doesn't mean this actually happened. Yes, it made it into the New York Times in 1935. But when you start looking at the evidence, you still have to doubt that this
1: really occurred. Okay. Well, what about sewer gators in general? I mean, is there any evidence that there might be gators living in the sewers underneath some cities?
0: Well, I, I looked into this a little bit. So, for one question that immediately came to mind is, okay, n- New York is um, is a bit too far north for alligators to really have a chance. But are alligators living in sewers in, say, Florida? Yeah, and uh, and yeah, you you do see reports of gators winding up in Florida storm drains or sewers, and many of uh, and this is because many of these waste outlets back out on, into the swamps. But New York sewers, not really, outside of just. Pure, you know, urban legend. This one, 1935 story, and also um, an account from 2010 in which a baby gator was found in a Chinatown sewer. Uh, there's not a lot to go on. And with that baby gator, it's I'm. It seems like it was probably just a case of somebody threw this this creature out into the sewer, and then it was found. This is not the same as say adult sewer born alligators popping up in Times Square. And then I should also. Um, Uh, mentioned that uh, Snopes.com has an article on this, and they point to the writings of uh, nature writer Diane Ackerman. She points out that the gators would only be able to survive for a few months at the most in New York uh, sewers. I would guess this would probably be the summer months, right? Right. Because the big thing is the temperature. They're going to need temperatures between 87 and 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And we're talking about them living in the sewer, uh, and they're, they're going to be surrounded by Salmonella, E. coli, Shigella, other sewer microbes that they're just not going to be able to live with. Those They're going to die in there. A sewer is just not a, a suitable habitat for an alligator.
1: Yeah, and I think this does draw attention to the fact that while we do see many animals uh, coming up with fascinating adaptations and even evolving to be better fits for city life, not all animals are good candidates for this. And certainly not all animals are good candidates for this in all cities. Yeah, because with the
0: alligator, for instance, in in Florida, uh, yes, during the colder months, a storm drain environment can be actually an excellent place for a gator to hold up. All right, on that note, we're going to take another quick break, and then we'll be right back.
1: All right, we're back. All right. Now, we've been talking about the myth of the New York sewer gators, which does not turn out to be true. And this has highlighted some of the ways in which not all animals are well-suited to all city environments. Some are much more suited to it than others. One animal that has proven extremely well-suited to city environments that is a larger predator, kind of like an alligator, but very different type, is the coyote.
0: Yeah. And I've always found this interesting because it, when I've lived in very rural environments and when I've lived in urban environments, they're all they're essentially all I encounter are mostly tales of the coyote. It's such mm. a secretive and stealthy animal that it's more of a it's, it's almost supernatural. This this beast that is there, but you're only aware of it through uh, its childlike noises from the, the, the kudzu under dark, just, uh, you know, reaching
1: out after you. Yeah. I mean, it's it's haunting. That's a beautiful image. I don't usually think of coyotes that way. Yeah, I guess they're so common in cities now we've started – they've started to lose some of their wildlife magic and we start to think of them as like, oh, that's like a city rat or something. <laughs> you know? But no, it's a, it's a coyote. This is a large, candid predator. I mean th- this is an interesting thing, the fact that they're colonizing our cities so much. So I uh, found an interesting uh, Ohio State University news report on the work of the OSU wildlife ecologist Stan Girt who has been studying urban coyotes and some interesting facts and observations from Gert's research. One is that coyotes have colonized pretty much every big city in the United States. Oh, wow. In 2015, somebody even snapped a picture of a coyote standing on the roof of a bar (laughs) in Queens. What? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. How did it get there? I don't know. They, I think they think maybe it got out from a window of a building nearby or something like that. Oh, wow. But yeah, in Queens, there's <laughs> a coyote on the roof of a bar. And th- this actually just isn't all that weird, as weird as it seems, because coyotes are everywhere in our cities. Gert has uh, observed coyotes adapting to city traffic, literally pausing at the edge of the street, looking at the direction that traffic comes from and checking for oncoming traffic. Nice. Because in an urban environment, we've already talked about the idea of cars as predators. The number one cause for death for a coyote in a city is getting hit by a car. But those risks are paired with big rewards because Gert's research has found that an average litter size for an urban coyote is nine pups, which is bigger than the average litter size in rural areas. And this means city coyotes are fattening up on abundant resources And this is possible because coyotes can make use of all kinds of resources. They're omnivores. They'll eat almost anything. And these are the kinds of organisms that tend to do well in cities. Now, on the other hand, people have started to see them very much as an urban nuisance. I even found a New York Times article uh, about the trend of urban hunters culling city coyote populations. Huh. Have you read about this? I have not
0: heard about this. I've heard about – you know, rat hunters, obviously, but this is the first I've heard about the coyote hunters.
1: Yeah, so because of this kind of action and the fact that we will never seem to get rid of all of them, I wonder if we may actually be driving a selection regime to evolve urban coyotes that are, guess what, good at hiding from humans. Yeah. And there's a cool example of this that's actually already been reported in places like National Geographic. So uh, to quote from a Nat Geo article on it, quote, In downtown Chicago, one GPS collared coyote pair raised a litter of five healthy pups inside a secret concrete den in the parking lot of Soldier Field Stadium, home of the Chicago Bears. Wow. A high traffic uh, uh, environment. But the signals to me, the emergence of of invisibility traits in Mm -hmm. these creatures, you know, they find those places where no one will look for them. Okay, one last animal to look at. There are millions of ways we could look at mice, Mm. but there is one way that I think is going to be particularly interesting. So one of the ways we don't often think about the effects of the techno ecosystem of the city is that it creates urban islands. And this could be counterintuitive to us because to us, a city is actually – one of the easiest places in the world to get around, right? There's no rocky terrain. There's no forest blocking the way of getting through things. A city is the place where you can go to somewhere, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, you hear about, oh, this is a very walkable city. You can just get out and... and. Walk wherever you want. You don't have to cross a river, scale
1: a mountain. It's just all there. But for many animals, a city is exactly the opposite. So in his book, Skilthausen points out many ways that cities start to recreate the principles of island biogeography – By allowing small patches of habitable environment that are separated from one another by all kinds of virtually impassable barriers, freeways or even small roads for some animals, uh, breaks in vegetation cover, there are all kinds of barriers we wouldn't even think of. So Skilthausen mentions a case of something kind of like island evolution from within New York City, specifically the work of a zoologist named Jason Munshi South of Fordham University who studies the way that different isolated populations of mice have evolved for specializations for different parks of New York City. Now, South's research is focused on the white-footed mouse or Paromyscus leucopus. And this mouse inhabited the meadows, swamps, and forests of the New York City area long before humans ever settled there. So it's not the kind of mouse that follows human settlements everywhere. It's a local that has clung on to survival in the city that rose up around it. And so originally, this population of white-footed mice would have been a single combined population with continuous interbreeding throughout. But the populations that have survived up until now in New York are isolated from one another on the islands of New York's parks. So there's a population in Central Park and one in Prospect Park and more in smaller parks around the city – And the mice can do pretty well in these parks because most of the parks actually aren't big enough to support natural predators like owls or foxes, but – the different park populations don't tend to interbreed with one another very much, which means they're free to evolve independently in different directions, whether through local natural selection or just through genetic drift.
0: Yeah, because how's a mouse going to get from, say, Washington Square Park all the way to Central Park? Are they going to they're going to take the train?
1: No, I mean some some rodents will be better at traversing the city in that way than others. Mm-hmm. These mice are very shy; they want vegetation cover. They don't want to come out from under the plants mm-hmm. they live beneath.
0: So unless Unless there was like a land bridge of parks between the two,
1: right. Yeah, they're probably not going to leave their island. Now, it's not that mixing never happens, but it's very rare and rare enough that these populations do evol- have evolved to become genetically distinct. Munchy hmm. South and colleagues have uh, – they've been tracking the evolution of these different park populations by trapping mice from each of the parks and performing cross-reference DNA tests – Now, gene pool fragmentation like this is generally considered bad for the health of a species in the long run. This is one of the reasons you see these wildlife corridors, you know, that are so important. It's because they help creatures from one side of a freeway come to the other side so they can mate and increase the the gene flow across the two populations. But nevertheless, the fragmented populations of white-footed mice seem to be doing pretty well and they've adapted more and more to their local conditions in the parks where they live. Now, you might think, how could the adaptation pressures of one city park be all that different from the pressures of another park or another place? Uh, I mean, there are some interesting results. So here here are some adaptations they found that were specific to central park mice. The central park mice had a variation in the AKR7 gene, which is involved in neutralizing aflatoxin, which Hmm. is a toxic compound produced by some molds. As Skilthausen points out, Molds that grow on seeds and nuts.
0: Interesting.
1: So the obvious implication is that the Central Park mice are more exposed to this kind of toxin, probably in the foods that they eat. Another one involved in diet, a variation on the FADS1 gene, which is involved in the metabolism of high fat diets. Ah. That's this, kinda, pr- this is probably a trash situation. Right? Yeah, kind of not not hard to see what's going mm-hmm. on there. But then there are other mutations found in the city park mice having to do with diet metabolism, exposure to pollutants, and importantly, immune function. Because as Munchie South says, quote, very easy to spread disease when you're in a small population.
0: Interesting. I love this. They are they're evolving to live on a diet of $1 pizza slices. Right. Yes. As are many New Yorkers. So, I mean, fair's fair. Is fair.
1: But New Yorkers, at least, you know, they've got more ways to get around, right? These mice live on an island. Yeah. Even in the middle of a city, it is an island to them. They really can't leave. So they deal with what imports arrive. This is going to be a good one to think about the next time
0: you're walking through a city park.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy to imagine that the types of trash usually littered in one park versus the types of trash usually littered in another park. If they're different enough types of trash, this could literally be shaping the evolution of the creatures that live in those parks.
0: Oh, wow. So is is the human population, like the the details of a human population, change around a certain park? It could have a... A drastic even disastrous effect on the mice that uh, reside there
1: yes yeah, food trends come and go yeah. in nearby restaurants and stuff like that it's crazy
0: yeah they depend on the avocado toast and then what happens when that goes away
1: <laughs> right oh yeah we, we we went all in on evolving to be <laughs> avocado toast eaters and now you're into what grapefruit rice i mean <laughs> i don't want that well, I think we should wrap up today's episode with just one final look at uh, some general trends in urban evolution that have been observed across many studies. And, and of course, be reminded that we're going to come back and explore more examples of urban evolution and adaptation in the next episode here. But to sum up today, uh, actually Jason Munchy-South, who we were just talking about, is one of the authors of a paper we're about to look at. The other author was Mark T.J. Johnson, and this was a paper called Evolution of Life in Urban Environments published in Science in 2017. And this is a huge review of research on urban evolution observing general trends and what's been discovered in the literature so far. To discuss one example, uh, a general trend they've identified is, quote, cities elevate the strength of random genetic drift— meaning stochastic or random changes in allele frequencies, and restrict gene flow, meaning the movement of alleles between populations due to dispersal and mating. And so this leads to a loss in genetic diversity within populations and increasing difference between populations, just like we were talking about with the mice, right? Mm -hmm. A smaller number of studies they found indicate that urban pollution can increase mutation rates in urban dwelling animals, which might actually speed up evolution, right, if you've got more mutations going on. But then also when it comes to natural selection, cities tend to present different selection pressures than natural environments. And so they say, quote, adaptations typically evolve in response to pesticide use, pollution, local climate, or the physical structure of cities.
0: And that's not even counting um, canisters of mutagen that are thrown (laughs) into the sewer (laughs) and affect the uh, local turtle population.
1: I mean, you can't even factor that in. That's just an anomaly. Uh, but one more trait I think w- would be worth mentioning is something that Skilthausen mentions in his book as adaptive to many species in cities. And it's what would be known as neophilia or an attraction to strange or fami- or unfamiliar objects. Like uh-huh. if, if you're an animal, neophilia obviously cuts both ways. It's a gamble. If you approach a strange, unfamiliar object, it could turn out to yield big rewards for you. It might have some good tasty morsels in there. Or it could turn out to injure or kill you. Nature probably pays many animals to be conservative and avoid strange stimuli. Better not to risk it, right? But in the city, animals can get big rewards by approaching a KFC bucket or an ice cream (laughs) carton or other objects that would not – they would not have natural instincts for or any previous experience with. So there could be cases in the cities where neophilia is positively selected for in a strong way. It may be breeding more bold, more curious animals.
0: Well, I, 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 this brings me back to the raccoons, you know, the idea that the raccoon is, is bold in its, uh, its experimentation with uh, some sort of a puzzle before it, you know, such as a KFC bucket. I mean, a KFC bucket is probably nothing to a raccoon. I'm sure they're well, uh, they, they are well acquainted with the uh, with the the bucket of KFC at this point. Uh,
1: excuse me, Mr. Lamb. We know about those. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I guess maybe that should be it for today. Right. And then we, we can explore more when we come back. We haven't even gotten deep into one of the most fascinating areas of urban evolution, which is birds.
0: Yes. And then there's the whole, uh, we, we talked a little bit about light earlier, but light pollution is another area with some very surprising, uh, adaptations that are occurring.
1: We will explore all of those fascinating avenues the next time. And, uh,
0: hey, while you're waiting for those uh, those new explorations, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is The Mothership. That's where you'll find this episode, all other episodes, including our episode on the London Underground Mosquito. Uh, which is a fascinating look at a particular species that has adapted to uh, an artificial human environment, that of the London uh, underground train system. Uh, Also at stepdoblowyourmind.com, you'll find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram.
1: Thanks so much, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other episode, to suggest a future topic, or just to say hi. As always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit
1: howstuffworks.com.